everyone, it's Judy Warner. Welcome back to this week's Ecosystem Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Randy White and Stephen Slater of Keysight Technologies. We're going to take a deep dive into memory design and simulation, specifically in DDR5. They're going to give us a sneak peek of an upcoming webinar on September 13 that's going to talk about uh, Pathwave ADS 2023 high-speed digital design and simulation. Even though that's a mouthful, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation where we talk about the ecosystem that exists around DDR5. We're going to talk about an upcoming um, update to the JEDEC standards around DDR5. We're going to talk about the importance of guidelines that always changes each time DDR has a new iteration. And we're also going to talk about ways that there's such innovation around the area of pre-layout simulation that results in fewer board spins and a huge savings on costs and time. Make sure you check out the show notes. There's lots of resources for you there from JEDEC, Keysight, and there's also a link to this upcoming webinar where you can take a deeper dive into the subject. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Now let's join Randy White and Stephen Slater of Keysight Technologies. Hi, Randy and Stephen. Thanks so much for joining me today. Um, before we get started, Randy, let's start with you. Uh, tell us a little bit about your technical area of es- expertise and what you do for Keysight. Sure. Yeah, I'm the uh, Keysight Memory Solutions Program Manager, uh, which, you know, in a nutshell, that means I'm responsible for overseeing the development and I manage the uh, various um, solutions for validating memory and also as an added uh, benefit, I have the opportunity to represent Keysight on the JEDEC Standards Committee. Awesome. Stephen, how about you? Same question. Yeah. Hi, um, Stephen Slater. I'm a product planning and marketing manager for uh, Pathwave Software Solutions. So basically, um, Pathwave ADS and all the simulation um, technologies that are behind it have a team of um, of three product owners and application engineers and uh, any, everything that's responsible for um, DDR, electromagnetic simulation, high-speed SERDES, that's, uh, that's in our wheelhouse. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation. You both are teaching me and I'm, I'm sort of onboarding this knowledge. So I've really enjoyed getting to know you both um, in our earlier calls. So Randy, I thought we'd start with you. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about DDR5. Can you believe we're there? And uh, and why that uh, technology has persisted as the prevailing um, technology that, that we're continuing down the road as opposed to other uh, technologies. I think that's a lot. That's a good question. And that question is on a lot of people's minds who may be starting out. Like, why, why are we still continuing with DDR when the fifth generation, what's made this so successful in terms of sticking around? Um, yeah, as, as it, it might not come as a surprise that, you know, there have been other competing technology, memory technologies that have come and gone and have not endured. And they each have their various um, strengths and maybe disadvantages. But, um, you know, there's a phrase that I tend to hear quite a bit with DDR, especially DDR5 lately, is it's a commodity memory, right? It's 
commodity in that it tends to be high volume. And that in, in essence is the kind of secret to the success of DDR memory. Um, we're balancing performance, trying to meet the various performance metrics like uh, latency, speed, capacity, which those have their own costs in of themselves. But at the same time, we have constraints on the other side that could limit the performance like power. And of course, I, I really think the number one driver that's made DDR uh, persistent um, is cost. And we, the price mm. point per gigabit uh, for a given memory device certainly outweighs the equivalent you know, cost performance that you would get from alternative standards. So, you know, as they say, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And uh, DDR is not broken so far. Yeah, so far. And cost is always a relentless driver as well as speed and technology and all those things. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, no, it's not run out of, uh, out of uh, puff yet either. So, you know, with the, the latest developments, you know, keep doubling the data rate and moving things forward. Things are getting more challenging, but then more technology comes in to, you know, to try to ease those challenges. So there's still, there's still bandwidth. We're not at Shannon's limit yet. So mm. we can keep, uh, keep pushing ahead and evolve the, the current standard rather than, you know, be a huge discontinuity to change to something completely different. And, um, yeah, and cover as many use cases as DDR can because DDR is so versatile. Yeah, and the bandwidth thing is a big deal, obviously, is like, and it's crazy to me. Like, I remember DDR2 and 3, and it just seems like we blinked, and it, and we're at 5, and now people are, you know, playing around, talking about 6 a little bit, and it always amazes me how we keep doubling data rate and just doing this. It just always blows my mind, but it doesn't seem like you said to run out of steam yet. Randy, you mentioned briefly your role um, on the sub, the validation subcommittee at JEDEG. Can you talk about like, you know, you're obviously an internal um, employee of Keysight. Why, why did you choose to do that? And it seems like something Keysight's decided it's worth investing you as a resource um, you know, what was the thoughts behind that? And can you tell us a little bit about what that's like and, and what the focus of that validation subcommittee is? Yeah, you're right. I, yeah, earlier I mentioned, you know, my primary focus at Keysight here is to help drive the development of our solutions that our customers need to sign off on their next gen memory designs. Um, but also part of that is sort of a forward-looking role in the industry, and that's hmm. within JEDEC. So uh, JEDEC is the um, centralized uh, organization that manages and defines the specifications or, or the standards that go into today's microelectronics. And memory is, is a big part of that. And like I said before, it's a commodity. So if we need to come if we need to implement a commodity memory that is um, consistent in its performance, it's um, financially viable, that's where JEDEC comes into play. They do a great job there. 
So my role, why is Keysight saying, okay, yeah. you have an internal focus of working with the teams to develop your solutions, but at the same time, we also want somebody to uh, participate and contribute um, and represent the interests of the test and measurement industry within this organization. It's important mm -hmm. because if you can't test it, you know, you can't fix problems. Uh, right. There's this concept of design for test, meaning um, mm -hmm. having a, a strategy that incorporates test and validation up front um, in your in your product development lifecycle. Keysight feels it's very important to make sure we represent the in interest of the industry uh, from the perspective of test, test and measurement, um, because that's a critical function in the product uh, development lifecycle. I might that's put very you on true. this. Very Go true ahead. as well for this change from DDR4 to DDR5, because um, you probably get into it a little bit later, Randy, but you know, one of the key things was the the test uh, measurement point where you're you're making the measurements has moved inside in you know inside the die now and without the test and measurement you know um, insights uh, the, the you know uh, trying to help out the specification it'd be rather difficult to to come up with something that would um, you know actually have a full compliance test for DDR5 without that input and insight. Yeah, for, for years and years, memory, especially DDR, has, has been about managing setup and hold time, right? It's a clocked, it's a source synchronous bus. So we send a clock along with the data and we have to make sure we meet those timing, those setup and hold timings. Mm. And designers for years have padded or added a guard band. And in a way it's been, the system has been over-designed so they're giving yes. up margin. They're over designing their um, yes. for what's required, and then now the margins are getting so tight with the higher speeds, it's mm. just nearly impossible to meet to scale the setup and hold re um, requirements and limits that they would need to meet the higher speeds. So we have to think differently about this. And to what Stephen said earlier, it's a great point. Uh, part of thinking differently is thinking more about the performance of the receiver, uh, which incorporates mm. a lot more functionality like equalization. And how do you test that? It, it's never been done before, at least in memory. So it makes it makes for a fun and interesting uh, engagement within JEDEC. Well, one thing I have appreciated about getting to know some of the internal um, experts and stakeholders like yourselves regarding Keysight is kind of this, um, you know, looking at, at like a design for test and then the test, right? Because internally you, you, because you make your own instruments, right? You face this as a company and also your customer base. And it's just a unique thing to have the software and the hardware. So, coupled and sort of have, like I said, you know, the ecosystem, obviously that's why I named the podcast there. So, um, Randy, you'd mentioned to me, first of all, I got to ask this question that I, that I haven't asked before and sorry if I'm putting you on the spot. What does the acronym JEDEC stand for? Yeah, it's a, it's a mouthful, uh, joint electron device engineering council. And that sounds sort of, you know, uh, ambiguous or, uh, maybe not so clear, but it's essentially um, 
a standards organization that defines microelectronics, either at the package level, the interface level, mechanical. There's high band, high band gap uh, power electronic semiconductors. There's you know small signal DRAM, DDR uh, device um, definitions, and, and anything in between. So microelectronics is what JEDEC focuses on. Interesting. Well, thanks for unpacking that. I never, you know, I've known about JEDEC for years, but I never thought to ask anyone what that acronym stands for. So uh, what I was starting to unpack here, and I'd like to hear from you, uh, Randy, on this is, you know, I, I think now more than ever, for the reasons that you've both mentioned, that we have to, even if you're not a systems engineer, you need to start to think like one and at least understand what your upstream and downstream stakeholders are up to so you don't hit your head, right? Or or trip at some point because of a blind spot. And you have um, loosely described to me that, that there's an ecosystem in which... Um, when it comes to memory, you know, you've all, you've touched on it, you both touched on it, right? But can you sort of unpack what that ecosystem looks like so that people are listening can understand sort of from a, a systems-based approach? What is that ecosystem hmm. that creates that, that uh, visibility? I like that. I like that question. It's fascinating because, you know, I think about it a lot, you know, being from Keysight, we serve and support a, a number of uh, customer use cases and kind of, you know, um, stages of a product lifecycle, be it semiconductor, silicon, or final system production test. But mm -hmm. I think in order to understand the ecosystem, let's let's back up a bit. And let's take a look at the organization of JEDEC itself, which will then lead okay. into further explaining the ecosystem because okay. they're, they're, they're mirrored in some degrees, in some respect. So JEDEC, as I mentioned, comprises various organizations that rep have their interests represented through different working groups. And these working groups are structured by committees and subcommittees, and then within these subcommittees, you have task groups. So at the lowest level, the task groups meet on a weekly basis and discuss different mm. topics. Um, as we move to DDR6, there's a task group that's um, organized around what is the interface for DDR6 look like? What are the minimum requirements? What are the nice to have and the optional features that need to be incorporated and then as that those task groups work together and come to a consensus on these are the requirements these are the specifications that we agree on right because there, there are multiple companies that are actually competitors in the market but in order to work together and standardize mm. come together on a standard they they work together um, as many other standard bodies do Sure. So this bubbles up to a subcommittee and there's a voting period that a voting process that happens at a on a quarterly basis. And then that in turn goes up to the committee level. And then finally it goes up to the JEDEC board of directors and they have the final vote and approval for which this feature and maybe it's a set of features to make it more efficient 
um, all these features then get rolled into a future version of the specification. So DDR5, for example, it was introduced in July 2020. So about we're about two years into the life of DDR5. Mm -hmm. In general, it takes uh, a, a specification about five years in JEDEC from back of the napkin wow. numbers and specs to mm -hmm. it's actually published on JEDEC.org. And so a lot there's a lot of back and forth voting. And like I said, board of directors will take that draft spec, whatever it may be, and then approve or reject. Now, with, going back to the ecosystem question, task group subcommittees, there are different task groups and committees for different um, parts of a memory design. I mean, that's one way to simplify it. You have the interface itself, right? You have the pin, the signal that's coming out of the pin, that's the interface. Mm -hmm. Then you have the device, right? The DRAM, or it could be SRAM, or it could be any other memory type. And then from there, if you go up a level, you have the system, which um, JEDEC, it turns out, currently does not define the system uh, specifications. So we, we more or less stop at the um, device level. However, as a, as a courtesy or a way to simplify the memory module um, adoption and design, JEDEC does mm -hmm. publish the specifications for the layout and the bill of materials and the schematic for uh, the memory modules that you would plug into a system. So that's the highest level that you'll see at JEDEC. Um, now let's, let's translate this to the industry. Within a system, mm -hmm. you have different components. The DRAM is sort of the central part, right? That's that's the part that's storing the data from the the memory controller. And so you have the the main, you know, th there's many DRAM companies, but there's basically three: Samsung, SK Hynix, and Micron. And then in um, in terms of uh, more importance for a memory design, we see a lot more um, emphasis and capabilities in some of these peripheral support components. So SPD, Serial Presence Detect, it's like an EEPROM that stores mm -hmm. the memory module uh, contents. Um, RCD, Register Clock Driver, it's a buffer and a um, a clock buffer and a command address buffer. So a lot of these components are very important. And um, for DDR5 to get to the higher speeds, some of the companies like RCD, Rambus, Renesis, Montage, those are the names that you'll hear. Mm -hmm. Those get implemented into a system. And so I suspect a lot of the audience listening to this podcast today is uh, probably more on the latter part of the um, mm -hmm. supply chain, if you will, for a system. Right. So it's important. It is important to understand how JEDEC works, to know your suppliers and what they think about and how they validate. So that way, when you integrate their components, you, you have a you know better feel of, of the big picture. And it sounds like a great place to tap into, say, if you're going to do layout and all of that, that you can, you know, connect all the dots so to speak, right, um, and have those guidelines. Um, a question I wanted to ask you, Stephen. So recently I interviewed 
um, Ben Dannon, who is from Northrop Grumman, and he mentioned that he's done some work with you. But an interesting thing, and again, this is part of my own learning curve, is he was saying that that memory design, that engineers on a whole see it as difficult, and sometimes people avoid it because they don't want to. And Ben was talking about sort of his own journey of like, he loves it now, but you know, he had to go through a learning curve. Can you tell me a little bit about why it's so hard and, you know, like people like Ben, you know, what is that evolution look like to onboard that kind of knowledge and capability? Yeah. Yeah, some of our customers um, <clears throat> actually will have someone in their team that kind of specializes in memory and, you know, all mm-hmm. the memory designs go to that one person. Um, but that's that that's not true of all organizations. There's plenty of organizations where there's a product and there's a single hardware engineer responsible for the the entirety of that project. And they have to do everything, the high-speed uh, SERDI signals, uh, the high-speed memory. It's all, you know, part of what they need to do. Um Ben is a he's a he's a very impressive engineer, and I think the thing that comes across very clearly is that he's got such a you know curiosity and enthusiasm for what he mm-hmm. for what he does. So yeah. when he chose to jump into memory, um, uh, you know, really and truly, it was just uh, work that was um, outside of his kind of day to day job, and um, and he, he wanted to write a like design con paper and get into it. Um, it's actually not as hard it is daunting from the outside and i think the thing that is daunting about it is there's there's such so many uh, signals so many signal names so many uh, types of measurements so many rules around how this uh, this technology should work um <clears throat> but probably you know my own experience how to get into it i found very useful the like amd xilinx um signal integrity like uh, user guides um they kind of give okay. you signal integrity guidelines for um, impedances and how, how long the traces should be, um, what the uh, termination settings should be at the end of uh, of the line. Um, it, you know, kind of goes through some of the choices that you have, and then you've also got like Intel's platform design guide, which is you know it's uh, there's a lot to read, but you you scan it first and just try to uh, try to let it sink in, um, but then try and take that knowledge and move it through into your very first kind of mental model of how this should work. And the mental model would be um, trying to build it in um, a, a simulation environment. So you, you build it up as um, transmitters and receivers um, and transmission line sections between. To start with, you can leave the vias out of it and just uh, just have pure transmission lines and simulate that. Look at the eye diagrams, make some of the measurements. And then yeah. you're slowly and slowly building on additional layers of knowledge um, and adding in more complexity. Um, so like there's lots of features in DDR, even things like they call like a data bus inversion. Okay, so you, you, at first you might be like, well, what, what is that? Do I need to worry mm-hmm. about it? But you don't need to worry about it to start with. You layer that in later on. And, um, and so you build up this mental model of how it's working. And we tend to call that like pre-layout design. Mm, and then okay. from there, you know, you've got to, good confidence that um, the design should work, then you can go and start to actually lay out the, the, the board, the PCB. Um, and then the final kind of uh, thing is, is that once the PCB is actually laid out in like an enterprise, uh, you know, layout tool, 
you can never kind of fit everything in exactly how you wanted to. So your your ideal um, structure never ends up being like that once it's actually yeah. on the on the board. So yeah, what you do true. is you bring that one back then into um, you know the simulation tool, and you do an electromagnetic um, extraction. So basically, you're trying to take all these you know uh, signals as they've been routed, and we're going to extract um, an, an an S parameter model from them. Mm-hmm. And then you drop that S parameter model back straight into your schematic. So where you had all those transmission lines before, you remove those and you drop in this S parameter model and you rerun the same simulation and you verify that it's still going to work. See, do I still have open eyes or have they you know, now closed? Look at the timing between particular signals, make sure that they are within spec. Um, and that's how you kind of build up confidence that... Uh, your design is is going to work. Um, and then the final thing is, could be uh, moving into compliance test, compliance with virtual mm. waveforms. Um, but I think um, maybe we might uh, discuss that. I'll, I'll, I'll leave Randy to kind of introduce the concept of uh, compliance test first, and maybe we can um, talk yeah. about that from the simulation perspective a little later. Yeah. Well, thank you. That was a really good explanation. And even for me as a civilian, that sounds like a good way to break it down and make it more relatable that you can do it in sort of a virtual way, you know, before you put skin and money in the game. Um, So I wanted to ask you a bit more, Randy, about the ecosystem and the impact, say, of going, you mentioned that it takes almost five years from napkin to having a standard. So I'm kind of interested in what happened between DDR4 and DDR5, how that impacted the ecosystem and and sort of where are you in in terms of when the DDR5 um, standards will be out and, um, and how it's, you know, obviously every time we make a jump like that, it affects designers, right, at every level. So what is the impact of all this sort of? Um, so if you can unpack that a little bit, that'd be interesting, I think. Yeah, it is really interesting to look at DDR4 versus DDR5 and, you know, what what are people getting themselves into when they advance <laughs> to the next uh, generation? Right. Um, I Well, I've got, I guess I've got good news and bad news. Um, yeah. I would like to start with I would like to start with the bad news first, right? It softens the good news makes up. But uh, the bad news is is yeah, this uh, this is much more complex. Uh, this is a significant architectural change. And what I mean by that is um, DDR4 had some very basic equalization and compensation functions built in they were optional and so for more extreme cases uh you would see maybe a couple of taps of dfe a ctle or ffe on the transmitter side but it wasn't specified and yeah as a bit of the wild west as needed it would be implemented now fast forward the ddr5 with the channel the channels are more or less the same right we're not going to go longer we're not going to go shorter you have to route from the processor or memory controller to your um, slot up into the module. The channels are nearly the same, right? They're typically uh, a centimeter or so, but the speeds have doubled, 
right? And we still have, like Stephen pointed out earlier, you know, we have decisions to make in terms of how many slots do we want? One dim per slot, two dim per slot. Hey, the more dims we have, the more memory we can address and our capacity increases. That's great, right? We can run more virtual machines per core. That's great, but the price is paid in signal integrity and load. Can the memory controller handle that much load? Uh, and so there's been uh, some provisions along the way that have made DDR5 an evolution, evolutionary change. So from the power side, right, we've, mm. we've switched to this idea of a PMIC, uh, power module IC, whereas before the voltage regulation was um, managed by the server or the host. And then the respective supplies were kind of funneled into the memory module. And that made it hard because any given system, whether it's a small uh, capacity or large scale, you know, um, cloud server, um, the you always had to design to the worst case power budget and it just wasn't cost effective. Mm. So now the PMIC allows the designer more flexibility because the voltage regulation is handled at the source, at the memory module. And that decouples the ground references. So now you're, you've got, you know, a bit of a benefit in terms of signal and power integrity noise and and, and mm. you got the cost advantage. So little things like that have added up to make DDR5 better for the end user, but it, it makes the design process more complex. So that's the bad news. Um, the good news is, is like I said, uh, there's a lot of benefits in performance. The back of the napkin um, part of the standards development process that I mentioned mm -hmm. at some point along the way, yeah. uh, the JEDEC uh, team, DDR5 teams did a lot of simulations and said, we cannot make this work at the higher speeds without equalization. I'm sorry, but we're, we are going to have to use DFE. So a four-tap DFE uh, receive equalizer has been implemented. And this is really, I don't want to say the secret sauce, but it's really been the, the pivotal element that makes this whole work. Um, the first round of DDR5 designs, what I would call first generation up to 3,200 up to 4,800 speeds. Uh, I wouldn't say the eye is closed in general. In some cases it is. But the industry now is moving forward to higher speeds, up to 5,200, 56, even 6,400. And especially with a two dim per uh, channel configuration, the eye is going to be closed. And so it, I would say if you're not familiar with uh, equalization and the concept of DFE, it's probably something you want to learn about and educate yourself so you can be more comfortable when you start incorporating that feature into your design. Can you, I really know nothing about equalization and DFE, and I'm wondering if the people who are listening do, can you just give us a brief overview of what, what that means to the design? What is that? I really don't know. So. Yeah. So um, a lot of other equalization uh, techniques rely on applying some, some type of gain right? We're going to apply gain at, at this frequency point, and we're going to boost the edge 
like de-emphasis or pre-emphasis. So that's a that's often employed for the transmitter. So it's a pre-distortion technique. I see. DFE is is very common and mostly used for the receiver in that there's a lot of distortion on the signal as the receiver sees it. So to help the receiver better detect the signal, we use this is a decision feedback equalizer. And so the way that uh, mm. when the signal comes into the receiver, it goes through what's called a slicer. And a slicer, like the name implies, has a threshold. If it's above the threshold, it's latched as a certain logical value or state. And if it's below the reference threshold, it's it's the you know a low state or zero. Decision feedback equalizer allows us to add certain weights uh, to that threshold. So as we detect certain bit states that are coming in, uh, based on the history, right? If it's if we have a long string of ones, right, and then all of a sudden we transition to a zero, you can better believe that that zero will be a lot smaller than had we transition from a zero one zero sequence right so right. dfe allows us to dynamically and on the fly change the receiver threshold to make the job of detecting the signal easier interesting that's way out of my knowledge but i tracked it pretty well so thank you for explaining that not only for me but for our listeners um Another another way to think about it um, as well, and maybe this might be useful for those who are watching the podcast uh, mm -hmm. visually and not listening to it, is maybe um, if we flash up an image of what a, a single bit, like a, a pulse response, looks like mm -hmm. before and after decision feedback equalization. And what that picture is going to show is that the pulse that you sent was like a, a, a beautifully uh, undistorted, you know, <laughs> zero, one, zero. Um, mm -hmm. But then once it goes through the channel, um, a lot of the energy from that pulse gets spread over future bits, basically. So it gets I spread and, and, and gets the receiver at a later time. Yeah, so love to see after, that image, yeah. by the way. Yeah, and then, and, then, and then after equalization, after the DFE, you'll see that all of that energy that happened in those you know, future bits, the bits that are to come yet, um, they get removed away. They get uh, they get um, you know uh, deleted or compensated for, and so I think that would be a yeah. It's a it's a nice way to try and understand exactly what the outcome of DFE is and why it would make the the signal better. Okay, make sure you send that to me. Oh, well, I'll, I'll get back to you. I on thought that would be a good uh, a good one. <laughs> Good one. To yeah, throw in. no, yeah, a we, picture's worth a thousand words, right? Uh, okay, good. Judy, go ahead. Sorry, one more thing. Sorry, I don't mean to scare everybody, but we want to educate the audience about yes. what, what's coming. So it's one thing to validate and verify DFE in a DDR5 device standalone, you know, which all the DRAM companies do. Mm -hmm. But once that device go, shows up on a system, in essence, you know, you're kind of throwing it over the wall. How does a system designer verify or, or validate the DFE performance within the system itself? Because now you've got the yeah. channel, that specific channel was not tested at, you know, at Micron or Samsung or, or Hynix, 
Uh, I mean, they have their own test channels and they do characterization, but now you, now you have a system designer that has their specific design. Yeah. How do you know it works? Right. And this is where the beauty of the memory controller training sequence. And I think this is also, Ooh, this is complex, right? There's no spec on it and it's very customized for a given channel. It's the, it's the BIOS. The BIOS is the software that's under the hood that will go out and uh, do some right leveling sequences and other forms of training to optimize the delays, the termination, right? There's different terminations depending upon if it's a single rank, a rank is a, set, a group of devices, or if it's a multi-rank, you can talk to multiple devices at the same time. So I would emphasize that the training is really, really important for DDR5. I mean, it, it's great we've got equalization, but you have to make it work in the context of your design. Yeah. And if you don't have the training right, I mean, the thing, you, you won't even be able to boot. Right. So what's the best way to onboard that? Like that blind spot, how do you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think uh, <laughs> sometimes even, I feel like I just ask almost near impossible questions or, uh, yeah, well, you know, anyway, so sorry if I'm no, no, that's, pulling that's, you that's, into the weeds deeper. Yeah, Steve alluded to this earlier. So the again, the good news is, is, you know, we're not throwing the system designers out in the cold, right, to yes. fend for themselves. Uh, he Stephen mentioned this concept of a design guide. And the design guide says that if you follow this, these, this stack up, mm -hmm. this layout, this yes. uh, structure for your, for your channel, you should be good to go. But, you know, we all know that there's not a one size fits all. So there's variability and there's some tolerances that are given for people to customize to their need. And that holds true for the BIOS. So there's a, um, memory reference code in the same way that the design guide says here's the recipe to create the hardware yes. there's a similar guide for the software um, where one can then if you follow this re memory reference code uh, and here are the parameters that you can tweak you can train this way uh, you can optimize for the the different topologies that you need to support um, you should have a high chance of success. So that tool is there in the industry. And I, without it, it's very difficult to, you know, you don't want to yeah. reinvent the wheel. Well, um, I'm glad it's even there. Sometimes like in the podcast with Ben, I asked him questions. He's like, uh, yeah, that's a good question. You yeah. know? So it's really good to hear from you that there's very specific things. Well, you're sort of helping me to segue into a question I have at, if I was listening or watching this is, so what specifically, you're, you're talking about the design guidelines, right? And, and what are some other ways that you can tap into really meaningful resources, right? Um, like this specifically. Um, yeah, Stephen mentioned earlier about um, AMD Xilinx and Intel. That's a really good piece. And I'll, you know, Stephen, if if you wouldn't mind sending me those links, I'll put those below in the show notes mm -hmm. for our listeners. Um, 
what what other um well let's let me back up a bit so we need resources but you've mentioned to me in an early conversation that what's really needed is kind of this comprehensive um design and test strategy right and so how how do design or systems engineers like what are good practical resources that they can go to tap into some of this knowledge yeah so i i threw out the phrase design for test and you know that's important yes. but what you said and what i also am of the same opinion is it's kind of taking that to the next level and that's a design and test workflow and so what does that look mm. like that's 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 a must-have strategy going forward. Mm. Recently, I was talking to a, a validation engineer at a large um, a memory company, and mm -hmm. I and I said, "So your job is to kind of receive the hardware, the prototype. You have a power on. You know, you turn it on for the first time, and you you check the vital signs, and you see if it's working, and then eventually you generate a report, pass fail. Do you know what?" how do you know what to expect in terms of the results? He says, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And that, at that moment, when I heard him say, I don't know what to expect in terms of the results, that really scared me. It, I, it, I know it sounds cheesy, but it, I just thought you really should, whenever you start a project, you should know the outcome, what to expect. And so that's where I realized the design, linking the design phase in simulation with the validation phase in the lab with hardware, that is such an underserved need. Mm -hmm. It's a, something that has evolved, it's been there, and now it's so important. Right, so <clears throat> to that point, I know that, you know, with an upcoming webinar you're doing about some new features in ADS coming out, right? There's some of those things, right, in it available from Keysight. And I'd like to hear about what specifically those are. But, you know, I did a podcast not long ago with Matt Ozales, who's on your team, and he was mm -hmm. talking about this overall move towards this shift, shift left, right, mm -hmm. where, like you said, design with test, you know, and uh, reminds me of the old, what was his name, Wayne Dyer, that said, you know, begin with the end in mind, right? Mm -hmm. But validation in the front side through, I mean, not validation, simulation, you know, when we were talking earlier, we'll, and we'll unpack this a little bit about validating up front, you know, which was Stephen was talking about earlier, and having that ability to sort of vert, do that virtually mm -hmm. before you're three spins in, right? Yeah. It's not shoot in the dark, get a proto, da, 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 and then throw it in the trash, start over. Um, so <clears throat> I know you have some, some apps through you and um, for our audience, uh, they are going to host a webinar that's going to talk about some of this virtual simulation, what they're talking about, which is relatable to me is like a uh, what'd you say, Stephen, like a, a simulation wizard, you know, that can kind of walk you through that in the tool. 
Um, but that's on September 13th, and I'll put the registration information in the notes below, but that's coming. <clears throat> but as we, you know, sort of get closer, I want to give our audience some real critical takeaways. So what are some of those apps? Um, and then if you could um, talk about what you're going to discuss in that webinar and yeah. what solutions, key sites coming up to as they face down some of these challenges. Yeah, certainly. Thank you. So um, let me take it all the way back to one of the very first uh, things you said about, um, you know, shift left. Um, that's, that's, that's one, just, just one of um, several, let's say, interconnected big, big themes out there. So um, agile uh, design methodologies, which usually apply to software, but, you know, um, it's being applied to hardware design now as well. Shift left, that's another, you know, kind of a big theme that's out there. And, and digital twin. These are all like big buzzwords. I'm trying to break it down. What is it really? Um, well, it's, it's moving hardware design from, you know, the traditional, um, uh, you know, a V kind of like a, a waterfall model where we do a bunch of design, specs come down, do the design, get down, prototype, and then go and validate and test, you know, et cetera. Um, and, and trying to bring um, iterations of the design earlier. So being able to do, you know, shifting left, it means, um, you know, hey, if I'm going to eventually sign off a design with a compliance test um, on the bench with hardware, why aren't why don't I bring those tests and measurements earlier? Why don't I why don't I bring them into the the simulation part of it so that I can find issues earlier and that should save me a bunch of time because you know it's very costly to fix something that's discovered you know way too late and put things in perspective because we you know this is all just high level but um, in 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 the webinar that we provide, um, we're going to be talking to Seiko, one of our uh, great customers from Italy. They work on um, some really cool, like embedded system design. It's kind of like um, high performance computing for industrial automation or like computing at the edge. And one of their challenges is they have to shrink everything down into a small a small real estate. Um, so they have to do some stuff that goes outside of like Intel's platform design guidelines. You know, their their via structures are really cool because they have to use like um, laser vias to to try and uh, fit everything in and get all the signals into where they need to. So for them, they got complex design. They can't really stick to the Intel's design guidelines. They have to um, simulate uh, and have good confidence so they can predict how it's going to work. And before they used to, before they did any simulation at all, it used to take them about six uh, uh, design spins, like six uh, PCBs, before they eventually get to the production build. Now they, the the third iteration is the one that goes to production. So they have a first prototype, they make some changes, second prototype comes, some final changes, and then that third one's ready for production. So they save themselves a bunch of time, but what they're doing is they're shifting the um, the effort and focus into doing more simulation up front. But at least in that method, they get to predict their design cycle. You know, they, they don't have any last minute surprises and they have great confidence that, you know, it's good. Yeah, which is what Randy's mentioning, right? Is like, what do you mean you don't know what to expect, right? And so that gives you, and, you know, I have more experience on the board level side of hardware and, that is 
one, I mean, there's so many sides of that when they get to that point that is um, costly, you know, cost-wise, time-wise, and time to market. I mean, it it costs them at every level it could possibly cost them. And so, I mean, going from six to three spins is can't be overestimated. That's massive improvement. Um, yeah, but one thing I would say about it too is, uh, you know, um, uh, I think naysayers would, would, would look at and say, yeah, but it's really quick for me to just uh, push out another another build of the board. So how much time am I going to spend in simulation versus what am I, you know, how quickly I can get another board out there? Um, I think that, that that is, you know, would have been true except that, you know, more recently we've been delivering like application focused, um, uh, like these simulation wizards or templates. So, um, so it, our product uh, in ADS called Memory Designer, for all of those next generation memories, so if it's like DDR4, DDR5, or even like HBM3, you know, all of these are next generation um, memory technologies. We've got, um, we, we start to treat it at a level of abstraction. So you've got a memory controller where you can specify as many signal nets as you want, and it identifies them correctly. And then you wire a, a single bus wire from it to the you know the PCB model, and then out to the receivers, and then a memory probe. And what that memory probe does is it can access the the waveforms at any location throughout the um, the, the schematic. So if I want to do um, you know a analysis of the eye diagrams anywhere on the board, it's really simple. You just do it as like a group. You know all these signals are alike. I want to set up the measurement and go. And then, you know, the final aspect would be the compliance test. And that's something that, you know, Randy touched on, but I think it makes sense to bring it back, you know, close now, which is, yeah, this is exactly the same compliance application, uh, making the, the test specifications as per JDEC, and it's making the measurements on simulated waveforms, virtual waveforms, um, exactly as you would on the bench with real hardware measuring, you know, real waveforms. So you've got this one thing, this one kind of uh, a source of truth, maybe one single source of truth that's, that's that's saying this is the measurement as I made it, and then I'm comparing the same numbers to what we see on the bench. And if there's problems, if there's something that doesn't line up, then you should be able to pinpoint, or at least it highlights that there's a gap between what we eventually built and what was modeled. So maybe the models need to be updated or maybe something was very different in the layout that shouldn't have been. Oh, Lee, go. I, oh, I'm sorry, Randy, go ahead. And then I want to tag onto that I, thought. You know, Stephen hit a resonant chord, a resonant frequency in my <laughs> head here with that last statement. Uh, yeah, we're, we're talking about, we originally started talking about results prediction, yes, pre-layout, yes. pre-fab. I mean, that's nice. And, and yeah, I think that definitely is a time-saving feature. Um, but I can't stress enough that what Steven said, the last part was about model correlation. So results prediction is, is a basic time savings, but how do you know, you're, if you just get results faster, how do you know the results are accurate too? So I think another element of this is refining your models and so now you can you can accelerate that process because it's a closed loop process. You know, uh, simulate, 
build, fab, test, okay, re-simulate, and you're kind of doing this in, in the loop. But now we're accelerating in that loop because we're kind of, you know, taking one or two steps ahead in advance. And then we can go back, hey, what if I swap out a different package type? What if I go, what if I switch from a single rank to dual rank? So you're running all these what if scenarios that would be hard to build or, you know, co you know prohib prohibitively expensive. But at the same time, you're also refining your models. And who, I mean, who doesn't want to have accurate models? I mean, that's a very well, important. And I think, again, my, most of my knowledge is on the board level type. And what made me really interested in having this conversation with you was because, again, in the, in the podcast with Ben Dan, and he was saying that he got a model. I don't remember who it was from, got a model. He was running the simulations and he says it was just off a little and, but he wasn't quite sure. And he has a process and he hadn't yet put in the board effects. And, and so he called up Steve Sandler, right? And both of them have told me in different ways that, you know, Steve has said to me many times, like in the olden days, the board effects just pretty much didn't matter. Right. And then as we go to higher speeds and frequency, it's like all the problems, there's so many problems are at the board level. And so then Ben, ben was able to figure out, uh, Steve said, it's probably the board effects, right? And so then he added in the board effects and it was perfect. But the model from the chip manufacturer wasn't quite accurate because it wasn't allowing anyone to correlate it. Mm -hmm. And it was just that simple problem solved. And so, for him to have that kind of insight, you know, before he was way downstream, I mean, that that really spoke to me anyways. You know, it's and, funny you mentioned that, Judy. This is a coincidence. I think that was that project was a paper that I did with Ben oh. for DesignCon. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But He mentioned that he had done a paper. Well, he had done some with some colleagues, but I know he was doing work with you. It may have been. Yeah. But and, the, and the specifics of that was the the model from the supplier said the ODT is this value, right? The ODT is the termination that preserves the signal integrity. But we were measuring something different. And, you know, it, it took time to get the board to set it up. So there was a cost associated with fabbing the board. We didn't fab it, but setting it up there. Had we had a more complete system model uh, that was accurate, that would have saved us probably a few months of effort. But it wasn't until we got to the very end when we made the measurements and we're scratching our head, like, why is the signal look like this? Because the ODT in the simulation environment gave us a different view. So we had a disconnect. Boy, I wish I had this linkage a lot sooner. Right. Yep. Three months. I'm so sure that is a, an enormous amount of time in engineering. And um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of following a, a, a rabbit trail because both Steve Sandler, who is, of course, a power integrity specialist, he's saying board effects used to not matter. Now it's always board effects. And without that co of kind of systems-wide intelligence, and now you're making tools 
that can give you those, that's like a sort of a transform, uh, transformational moment. It sounds like to me in the industry being able, and they've both, both Ben Dannon and Steve Sandler said to me, what's great about Keysight is that you get that end to end where you can look at it from a systems based approach with all the pieces, you know, across. So that's what got me interested in, in wanting to have this conversation. Then I knew that your, your webinar has come up. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for this, um, conversation um, about solutions wise um, Stephen before we go was there anything you wanted to um, at the risk of sounding a little bit like a Keysight sure. fan guy <laughs> but that's okay because it really it is exciting and I don't want to miss that point so before we close here you want to talk a little bit about what specifically those pieces are that enable that that end-to-end -end. Um, yeah, sure. Solution. So, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll speak about the simulation side, and then maybe Randy would uh, talk about um, t test side. But, um, but uh, this upcoming webinar, uh, we're going to be focusing on Pathway ADS, in particular the memory designer feature. Got a brand new um, a tool in there called the Pre Layout Builder, and it's kind of like a, a wizard that helps you to build out what the, the pre layout should be. Um, so it makes it nice, and it just it just accelerates your 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 design cycle, basically. Um, we also extended support. So now we have like LPDDR5X and HBM3. We also did all of the GDDR6s and 7s. So that that was from, from prior. But, um, but anyway, broad range of support. Um, but then, you know, that it's not all just about uh, memory. Um, the rest of the webinar is going to focus on um, new standards and reference channel support for like PCI Express, Gen 5, Gen 6, USB 4. So brand new set of features for that. And then also into power integrity. So in power integrity, um, we've added a brand new analysis type, which is focused on radiated and conducted EMI. And that's an interesting topic in itself. It's a whole other whole other topic in domain, but yeah, it is. But, yeah, but, it but is. in a nutshell, what it, what we're trying to say is is that you don't need to be scared of it. A power integrity engineer sets up their simulation, and it's really easy now just to be able to uh, move that into a, a radiated and conducted EMI test bench, and just uh, you know get the, the the check in the box and see what what might be problematic on the board. And then rounds off, the last thing rounds off with a, a look at high-performance computing, which is speeding up your simulations with parallel sims and how to do that effectively in the cloud. And then the last one is um, power electronics. And power electronics is another whole other area where you know people are looking at um, you know how can they develop really um, high efficiency, uh, like low noise power. Um, and nowadays, power electronics has gone into you know things like gallium nitride, um, uh, which has trade-offs. Right. It's like really high voltage, but you also get really high uh, high efficiencies out of it. So, um, so yeah, that's in a nutshell what we're going to be talking about. Um, and I don't know, Randy, do you want to maybe talk about any yeah. of the yeah. solutions? So on the on the other side of the world, there in the in the lab, you'll find you know the typical workhorse of the high bandwidth oscilloscope. And unlike a lot of other standards that use uh, cabling for signal access, memory tends to lean more towards um, high bandwidth probing, differential probes to access the signals uh, mid-bus. And new for DDR5 is, uh, we didn't talk about this a whole lot, but to really test the receiver, there's a 
or DFE, there's a receiver test, and this is test, you, you use a bit error rate tester, a BERT, to do that. And then lastly, there's the protocol aspect, which is just looking at the commands going back and forth and uh, refresh management, training sequences, things like that. So we, we use a logic analyzer for that. Awesome. Well, please, if you would, uh, be so kind for our listeners to send along some of these resources we've discussed. Randy, we didn't talk about it, but you mentioned, for instance, you know, we've barely scratched the surface here. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll put some links in the show notes, not only to the webinar where people can learn more, but also to the, the Pathways research, or resource page where there's lots of good learning. But, Randy, you had talked about a really deep dive um, on the JEDEX side. Um, so if you briefly talk about what that is, so our listeners know what the link is, and then we'll make sure to share that as well. Yeah, just really quick to touch on that. Um, you know, JEDEC does a really good job of industry enablement, and they host various workshops and seminars. In May, they hosted in, in uh, San Jose, they hosted a an all-day, uh, everything you want to know about DDR5, how the spec was developed. Uh, what are the training sequences? What are the typical use cases? How do you validate? Uh, why why does DDR5 use DFE? And and so much more. But at a I mean eight hours. This is a boot camp style um, training session from all the industry experts in JEDEC. So all the architects and the principal engineers that sit on JEDEC and drive the development of the standard, they're the ones that hosted this presentation. So JEDEC recorded the uh, presenters and has the audio and slides, of course. So these are available at JEDEC.org. Um, you can access those there, and I highly recommend as a further step beyond what Stephen mentioned and you mentioned about the webinar. But if you really wanna go deep technical, this JEDEC training is a great resource. Wonderful. And um, yeah, for our listeners, we'll make sure to put all those links below so you can dig in. And if you want to get your feet wet in DDR5, I think we'll give you more than, than maybe you want all at once, but uh, we'll give you all those resources. Gentlemen, thank you so much for all your insight and, and breadth. Um, one thing I keep forgetting to ask you, Randy, is when is that DDR5 um, standard coming out? Isn't it coming out soon? Yeah, it is. Uh, the last release was uh, October, November, 2021. This was uh, added a lot of new features there's a lot of activity in JEDEC now to move to higher speeds. And so, uh, yeah, this is in the final stages of approval within JEDEC. Um, of course, we can't share the exact date, but uh, this is definitely imminent. And so if you're, if you're a, a designer thinking about higher speeds and your roadmap, you know, going to 6400 and beyond, be prepared for this uh, new version of the DDR5 spec that's that's imminent. Okay, well, thank you for this uh, session of drinking from the fire hose. It's been really fun for me. I hope you guys have enjoyed it, and I'm positive our listeners will. Thank you both for joining me today and sharing your knowledge. Thanks, thank Judy. You, Judy. Thank you.
To our listeners, thanks so much for joining this conversation with Randy White and Stephen Slater of Keysight Technologies. Again, go dig into the show notes. We've given you lots of good resources to dig in there and make sure you go sign up for their webinar where they'll talk about this more in depth. And uh, that's September 13th. I think it'll come out about a week after um, we publish this podcast. So that is also in the show notes below. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Ecosystem Podcast. We'll see you next week. Until then, remember to always stay plugged in to the ecosystem. 